Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. Lord willing, we are just a couple of weeks from gathering together once again. Please be in prayer for our church and for the leadership as we make final preparations and for God to give us great unity and patience and love in the days ahead. Now, as we look at John's gospel this morning, let's begin in prayer. Let's ask that God would give us open minds, focused hearts, and ready hands as we respond to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is living and active, and it seeks to, to change us from the inside out. And God, as we consider what it looks like to make a decision for Christ, as we, when it, as we consider what it looks like to put our faith in Christ, God, I pray that you would give us honesty with ourselves today. God, you, would you give us courage uh, to change? And Lord, would you allow there to be a stirring up of the waters of faith in our hearts that we might believe in Jesus more firmly and more fervently this morning? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In July of 1838, Charles Darwin was 29 years old and single, and he had just returned from his voyage with observations that would eventually make him famous as the father of the theory of evolution. And yet, what was more pressing to him at that moment was a decision that he faced. Should he marry his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood, or remain singularly focused on his scientific career? And so as he faced this big decision in his life, he did what a lot of people do. He made a pros and cons list. I'm gonna to read to you some of the items on his cons list. He thought, if I get married, there will certainly be loss of time, perhaps quarreling, cannot read in the evenings, fatness and idleness, anxiety and responsibility. And then on his prose list, he wrote these things, children, constant companion and friend in old age, someone to take care of the house, charms of music and female chit chat. These things are good for one's health, better than a dog anyhow. Now there's lots of low-hanging fruit on this tree that we could pick apart. To give him credit, he wrote this letter, he wrote the, these, this pros and cons list on the back of a letter. He had no idea that this would be published and read by people years later. But if I had been a friend or a mentor of young Charles, there's lots I would say to him. First, I would say, don't marry your cousin. It's a bad idea. Second, there's more to marriage than companionship and chit chat. And third, under no circumstance should you ever compare marriage to a woman to dog ownership. It's just bad for everybody. But my point today is not to knock Darwin down. My point is to say that when it comes to making big decisions in life, he did what many people do. He tried to be thoughtful as he made this big decision and weigh out his choices. Ben Franklin called this method that he used prudential algebra. He would take a similar pros and cons list, but he would, he would assign numerical value to each item on the list to try to put a number to, to quantify his priorities and values as he made his decision. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that making life's biggest decisions, the ones that have the most impact on our life, on how and where we spend our days, it's never really that simple. It's never really just as simple as writing things out on a pros and cons list and then making a decision. I mean, think about the reality that our choices today are influenced by the choices from the past. We're influenced by others in society and by peer pressure. Our facts and opinions can easily 
be confused. We often, because of our confirmation bias, misunderstand or even flat out ignore information altogether. We're faced with the difficult task of considering which option that we're choosing will be most appealing today and tomorrow and even into the years to come. As we're making this decision, we, we weigh the emotional, the financial, the social, the spiritual, and the moral consequences of our choices. We're thinking about how it's going to impact ourselves, our families, even the society. And yet, from this multi-dimensional, complicated matrix, a decision must emerge. This morning, we're looking at John chapter 11 and into John 12 in the aftermath of Jesus performing his seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. Last week, Pastor Kevin walked through the sign itself and its significance. And this week, we're going to look at the aftermath to see how did people respond to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The seven signs in John's gospel demand a response from us. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him cleanse the temple with authority. He's healed people of disease. He's multiplied the loaves and, and the fishes to feed thousands. He's walked on water, and now he's brought Lazarus back to life. A decision must emerge where we decide who is Jesus and what are we to do with him. Our passage this morning stretches over 32 verses, and it covers three different narrative scenes. And instead of going line by line and verse by verse, my goal is to really look at and narrow in on the people's responses. What did they decide about Jesus? What can we say about their reaction, about their faith? See, in short order, John is going to give us several pictures of how different groups and different individuals responded to the person and work of Jesus. So before we get into the details, let me give you an overview of these three narrative scenes. First, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, some people went to the Pharisees to report to them what Jesus had done. This report of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead leads to an impromptu meeting of the religious minds to discuss what they should do. And they're worried that as people hear that Jesus has power over death, that people will start to put their faith in him, believe him, and follow him. And more than just following him, it means they won't follow them. The Passover is a week away, and they're concerned that as people begin to follow Jesus, Rome will bring their time of rule and power to an end. And their meeting ends with a plot to put Jesus to death. Now, in the next scene, we see a dinner party. People gathered together to celebrate the fact that Lazarus, who once was dead, is now alive. I mean, can you imagine the conversation around the table? Hey, hey, Lazarus, what was it like being dead? Where, where did you go? Were you, were you conscious? Did you see God? And, and what was it like when you started breathing again, when your eyes opened again? And Mary and Martha, isn't it wonderful to have your brother back again? And it's during this party that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, she lets down her hair and she grabs a costly ointment and she begins to anoint Jesus's feet. This act is a beautiful combination of worship and devotion. And even prophetically, she, she, she is uh, preparing the body of Christ for burial in less than a week. And then our final scene is often called the triumphal entry. As Passover draws near, 
hundreds of thousands of Jews flood into the city of Jerusalem for this holy festival. And as Jesus enters into the gates of Jerusalem for the last time, crowds have gathered and assembled, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And as Jesus comes in, he doesn't come on the back of a victorious war horse, but he comes on the humble back of a donkey. And as he enters the city, people lay down palm branches on the road as a symbolic gesture saying, Jesus, bring salvation now. Bring political peace. Bring national prosperity to Israel. And it's in these three scenes that we will see three types of responses emerge. First, we're going to see groups of people who have a a skeptical rejection of Jesus that see him as a threat to their goals. Second, we'll see some with a superficial acceptance that looks genuine if you're just looking at it from the outside, but it lacks heart level change. And finally, we'll see a devoted sincerity that receives Christ and seeks to grow in knowing him, loving him, and following him. So we'll see skeptical rejection, superficial acceptance, and sincere devotion. Let's start together in verse 45. John writes, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, verse 45 picks up where the, uh, the, the story left off last week. Jesus has rebuked death and decay and raised Lazarus to life. This man who had been dead for four days, where the decay process had already begun, he, he walked out of his tomb to a crowd of people who saw with their own eyes the power and glory of the Son of God. And you would think that seeing Lazarus raised from the dead would have had just one uniform response, wholehearted belief in Jesus. But John tells us that some who saw what happened went to the Pharisees to report to them what Jesus had done. Now, in, in, a, in a group of people going to make the report, some of them might have had purer motives than others, right? They might have wondered, hey, what, hey, Pharisees, you're the religious minds. What does this mean? But the simple fact remains that the sign wasn't enough for them to decide for themselves that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They had doubts, and they wanted to check those doubts with the establishment. They wanted to make sure that the proper religious authorities gave Jesus their seal of approval before identifying with him. This sign was meant to drive them towards faithful devotion to Jesus, but instead the sign drove them toward mainline religion that's socially acceptable. Jesus, you've done something amazing, but I want to make sure that it's socially acceptable to believe in you. Their skepticism leads them to question and doubt Jesus. Now let's look at verse 47 and following to see what hardened skepticism left unchecked leads to. Verse 47, So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the religious establishment, they convene this council to discuss how they can save their positions of leadership and power. 
Did you notice that the agenda for the meeting doesn't include discussing the validity of the signs? It doesn't include discussing the significance of the signs and what they mean that there is a man who can raise someone from the dead. They don't discuss what these signs mean or what does it say about who Jesus is that he can do these things. They're not even discussing if Jesus performed these signs. They know he did. They accept it as fact. But what they can't accept is that people start following and believing in him, then they're going to risk losing their place of prominence and power and prestige, and they can't accept it. They fear Rome will come in with a heavy hand if droves and droves of people start following Jesus, and that is simply unacceptable. The council is in a frenzy, and no one has a plan. Everyone's saying, what should we do? But there is one man amongst the many who has a plan, and his name is Caiaphas. Look what he says in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You listen to his words. Caiaphas has made up his mind. While everyone else is figuring out what should we do, he knows what should be done. Jesus has to go. He must be eliminated. Do you see how his skepticism has become hardened? Notice the way he just casually is talking about the death and execution of another human being. Things that we think are unthinkable become plausible, even possible, and ultimately preferable when our selfishness and sin is left unchecked. Think about that. Things that right now you think, I would never do that. I would never say that. I could never be like that. As sin and selfishness become hardened, things that are unthinkable suddenly become plausible. And soon they'll become possible. And ultimately, they become your preference. It's what you want to do. What, has become, uh, what was once unthinkable is now your desire. His skepticism became hardened and settled against Jesus. His logic is sinful, exaggerated utility. He says, isn't it better that one person should die than for our whole nation? What he really means is that we should suffer. He's selfish. And yet, John, who's a master at double meanings, a master with irony, he uses Caiaphas's sinful logic to express the gospel because it's also true that Jesus is the one man who will die for his people in the place of his people willingly so that everyone who believes in him would not perish. You see, the gospel says, Caiaphas, it is actually true that it is better for one man to die than a whole nation to perish. Verse 53 and 57 tell us that from that point moving forward, plans were in place to put Jesus to death. 53 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Did you notice there's no due process? There's no trial. Jesus isn't going to be tried to see if he's guilty. They have already found him guilty. They're going to put him on trial 
so that they can put him to death. And it doesn't even stop there. Later, we find out that they want to kill Lazarus too to get rid of the evidence. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Driven by their desire to maintain their power and position, the religious leadership is now willing to kill another man simply because of his connection to Jesus. Do you see how sin is never satisfied? It's always hungry for more. Now, of course, the point here isn't if you've got some doubts and some initial skepticism about Jesus that you're on your way to go plot and murder people. That's not what I'm trying to say. The Gospels detail others who have hardened skepticism and outright rejection of Christ without it turning towards violence. That's not the point. But what John is helping us say is that, or helping us see, is that an unchecked rejection of Jesus, coupled with a strong desire for power and control, can even turn religious do-gooders into cold-blooded killers. By this extreme example, John is trying to show you the very nature and destruction and power of sin. When the object of your greatest love is threatened, your fear and anger can cause you to do unthinkable things. And so before we quickly dismiss them as um, irrelevant and extreme, let's at least ask, do I have any seeds of skepticism growing in my heart right now that cause me to look away from Jesus? Do I have any things in my life right now that I consider untouchable, that I would reject Christ in order to keep? See, one way to respond to Christ is outright skeptical rejection. And that can grow and fester and cause you to do things that you thought that you would think right now are unthinkable. So if one response is rejection of Christ with hardened skepticism, let's look at another common response, superficial acceptance. See, if skepticism is overt and obvious, superficial uh, acceptance is more covert and it's harder to read. Where skepticism leads people to reject Christ both externally and internally, superficiality causes people to reject Christ internally, though they might receive him externally. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 4. Now again, this is right after Mary anoints Jesus with the expensive ointment. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What we see described here is a superficial acceptance of Christ on, uh, uh, on the part of Judas. See, from the outside looking in, Judas appeared to be one of the 12, right? He was one of Jesus' disciples, and yet, in a truer sense, he was not one of them. He participated in ministry. He served on Jesus' team, and yet, he was not a true disciple. 
Now remember, John is writing his gospel um, after the betrayal, after the light has been exposed on Jewish, uh, Judas as the uh, betrayer. But Judas is shocked that Mary has opened this expensive jar of perfumed ointment to, in his opinion, waste it on Jesus. As he's looking at this costly ointment, he realizes a lot of money, if we sold it, would come into the money bags. Judas estimates the value of this ointment at 300 denarii, which was about a year's worth of wages for a tradesman. Today's evaluation, that would be worth fifty to $60,000. You see, on the surface, from the outside looking in, it looks like Judas is making a fiscally responsible comment. On the surface, it looks like Judas is weighing the tension between devotion and ministry. Both are important. They're in tension. And so let's make a wise decision. On the surface, it looks like Judas is looking out for the needs of the less fortunate. But John ensures that we know the truth by offering this narrator's comment. Because in reality, beneath the surface, Judas was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag, and he would frequently help himself to what was put in it. He was in it for financial gain. His heart wasn't devoted to Christ, but to what he could selfishly gain from Christ. Now here's another example from our passage today. Look with me at chapter 12, verses 12 to 15. Now we're coming into the triumphal entry, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Passion Week has just begun. The first 11 chapters of John detail three years of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now the last 10 chapters will detail the most important week of his life. And it begins as Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Crowds have gathered from all over as Jews make their yearly pilgrimage for Passover. People heard that Jesus was coming and there was all kinds of commotion, all kinds of excitement. People have heard of his signs and wonders. Over the years on, during Passover and during the other feasts, Jesus has performed signs and wonders. And so there's this buzz going on about him. And now in just a town over, he's raised a man from the dead. And you can imagine, people are talking. And now as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, people want to see him. And with all of their messianic angst, they're hoping that Jesus has come to bring peace to their land and prosperity to their nations. And they all have these palm branches in their hands. And these palm branches have become symbolic for nationalistic hope. And as they lay down their branches, as Jesus entered the city, it's like they're saying, our hope is in you, that you will bring the peace that we want. And they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means bring salvation now. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so the symbolism and the cries of the people are clear. They're looking for Jesus to end Roman occupation and to bring nationalistic prosperity once again. Now again, we're talking about crowds. So in any given crowd, there's mixed sentiments and hope. There could be genuine faith there. But by and large, this group has an agenda they'd like Jesus to fulfill. And when he doesn't deliver like they expected, 
their shouts will change from Hosanna to crucify him. In just a few days, Jesus will go from being the blessed one, the one that they're praising right now, to the cursed one. Their response is superficial at best. They want a Jesus that meets their agenda. They come out to greet him to show their support only as much as he fulfills their wishes. Now, there's a lot we can unpack in these verses, but for our purpose this morning, we want to narrow in on the superficiality of their acceptance. They're willing to line up for a rally, but when it comes to following Jesus where he leads, they'd rather see him crucified. It's amazing, isn't it? How quickly this celebration parade devolves into a raging mob. So what about us? Are we willing to be around Jesus, but we're not willing to follow him? Are we willing to accept him as long as it benefits us? So that on the outside, everything looks like genuine devotion, but it's only surface deep. It's only superficial. Friends, you can be involved in Bible studies. You can go to church. You can even give regularly. You can serve on ministry teams, and it could all be fake. So how do we diagnose if our faith is superficial? One question to ask is this, has following Jesus ever cost you anything? Have you ever had to give up something to follow him, something that you consider dear and precious, but when you looked at the two, you said, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Jesus, I give this up to follow you. Maybe it was social standing, or maybe it was something that you held dear, but, but it kept you from following Jesus. And you said, I will give it up if it means following Jesus. Let me ask you this. How often do you spend time in private prayer and study in the Word when no one else is looking, where it's just you and Christ? Do you have, have you had seasons where you've experienced deep, conviction and heartache over your sin. These aren't exhaustive diagnostic questions, but they should get you started on a path as you consider the genuine nature of your faith. Again, we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for progress. And it's good not to endlessly consider these questions, to always be doubting the sincerity of your faith, but it's good every so often to ask, am I sincere in my faith, or has my faith become superficial? So we've seen pictures of skeptic, uh, skeptical and superficial responses to Jesus. Now let's look at the final picture of sincere devotion. Look at 12 verse 11, or verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So now we're back at the dinner party. Lazarus had died, and yet, by the word of his power, Jesus rebuked death. And now they begin to celebrate. This is a party. It's a celebration, a taste of the kingdom of Jesus. It's a glimpse of God's kingdom that's coming here on earth as it is in heaven. And just think about Mary. She's filled with faith, filled with gratitude, filled with joy. 
And yes, she's overjoyed that her brother is alive again, but I think it goes much deeper than that. This is the same Mary who had sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teach. This is the same Mary that enjoyed friendship with Jesus, receiving dignity from Jesus in a culture where women were often overlooked and undervalued. And in the midst of her suffering, Jesus comforted her and told her that he was the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it to her by raising her brother from the dead. Now she's filled with faith and gratitude, and she is looking for a way to express it. So she takes a pound of this expensive ointment made from pure nard. This, anointment, this ointment is derived from the spikenard plant grown in Asia. And if you consider the quantity, the fact that it's an, it's an imported good, the purity of it, the origin of it, all of this adds up to this incredible cost. And at the same time, remember, uh, when they would have these kinds of parties, it was customary for people to recline at the table during these long dinner parties. And so his feet are at the end of this bench, and, and as she takes the ointment, she begins to uh, anoint his feet. And we know from the other gospel accounts that she also anoints his head. And she lets her hair down, and she uses it like a cloth to wipe his feet. See, it's significant. She's willing to serve Christ and to even care for his feet. And in a couple of chapters, when it comes uh, another discussion about foot washing and foot care, instead of um, uh, the disciples willingly getting down and washing each other's feet, they're going to argue about who is greatest among them and why each one of them should be exempt from washing the other's feet. But not Mary. Mary gladly serves Christ. Here, as a genuine disciple, she's willing to serve at the feet of Jesus. And not only that, she is preparing the body of Christ for burial. Because in just a few short chapters, Jesus will go to the cross, die, and be buried. In fact, Jesus says as much. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus' ultimate defeat of death will come by the cost of his death. He will defeat the grave by going into the grave, and he will become the resurrection and the life by being resurrected to life himself. This is an amazing scene. Her faith is vulnerable. It took a lot of courage for her to come up to Jesus at the table and to let down her hair. In fact, we might even call this exchange intimate, and it's extravagant. Think about the cost of the ointment. And yet, for us, it is a picture of sincere devotion. She doesn't care what everyone else thinks because her attention is focused on Christ. She's willing to give up this earthly treasure, this jar of ointment that could have uh, provided for a year for her family. She's willing to give it up to express her gratitude and devotion to Christ. Remember, skepticism rejects Christ both externally and internally. Superficial faith might accept Christ in external ways, but internally never receives him. It's outward signs with no inward reality, but sincere faith receives Christ internally and externally. And those external signs, these outward signs, come from a changed heart. Now, is her faith perfect? No. Nobody's faith, including Mary's, wasn't perfect. Neither were the other disciples. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. From that, we understand 
The disciples don't fully comprehend everything that's going on because they too are works in progress. Their faith wasn't perfect, but friends, it was persistent. And that's a great picture for us too. Sincere, devoted faith expresses gratitude to God for what he has done in the picture of Mary, who is expressing deep gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for her and her brother. And in our imperfection, when we don't get it all, when we don't fully understand, we press on and we persist. Seven Mile Road. Sincere faith is marked by devotion and gratitude to Christ and persistence. So as you consider your faith right now, think about it. Would you describe it as devoted and persistent? Not perfect, but persistent. And if you feel like you could grow in your devotion, if you could grow in your persistence, then guess what? Welcome to the club. All of us can grow in our faith. So let me give you a couple practical things to help cultivate sincerity of faith. The first thing is pray for it. See, God tells us that, that faith is a gift from him. And if it's a gift from God, then it's God who you should ask. Ask him to give you more faith. Our God is generous and he loves to give grace to those who ask for it. Second, spend time in reflection. Think about where you were before Christ. Think about your life before. Think about what Christ has done for you. And remember, reflection doesn't happen at microwave speed. You can't reflect on anything for two minutes. Like Pastor Doug Logan says, this happens at the speed of a slow cooker. Reflection takes time. Slow down. And as you reflect on Jesus, as you consider who you were and what he's done, you will start to see gratitude fill your heart. And from that inward change, outward expressions will emerge. Seven Mile, everybody has to respond to Jesus. And the, the reality is, is the story of our lives will tell how we decided. Even if you don't write it down on a piece of paper, your life will declare how you decided. The claims of Christ and the signs of Christ demand a decision. How will we decide with the days and the details of our lives? Will we reject Christ with hardened skepticism? Will we fake it with superficial faith? Or will we allow the grace of God to change us from the inside out with sincere, devoted faith? Let's pray. Father, I pray as we consider the status of our faith that you would give us great self-awareness, great insight, where we wouldn't lie to ourselves, but we would be honest. And we would ask, where is my faith? What condition is it in? And God, would you, where we lack faith, where there is still unbelief, where there is still doubts, where there are seeds of skepticism, where we are faking it, God, would you expose those in our life so that the result would be purer faith? This faith that leads us towards sincere devotion to Christ. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that inward change in our life, and we ask that you would. In the precious name of Christ, we pray.